Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Do you love narrative podcasts but don't want to listen to ads? Cast Media is now offering ad-free listening with a Cast subscription, Cast Plus. You get ad-free access to not only Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, but also great shows like Opportunist, Vigilante, Good Cult, Nighty Night, Media Circus, and their new show, Lost in Panama. Along with ad-free listening, Cast Plus also includes bonus episodes and inside looks into making the shows. And this is just for Cast Plus subscribers. Find out more by going to castmedia.com slash castplus. That's castmedia.com slash K-A-S-T-P-L-U-S. At the end of her life, Hetty Green is more myth than woman. Rising before the sun, she dons a uniform of overworn black, Victorian-era garb that by now is about three decades out of date. But she pays no mind. As she boards the first ferry into the city, she always hopes that she will not be seen, that she will blend into obscurity. That morning, at least, no one seems to know her name. It's comfort. Hetty's lived and worked over turbulent decades, much of that in the public eye, which first looked at her with promise, then regarded her as a curiosity, and now has turned its searing eye on her with scorn. These days, this is the silhouette they cut for her when they deride her in the papers. Hetty, the Witch of Wall Street, depicted as crooked with greed, darkening the doorways of lauded cathedrals to capital, a miser outdoing all other misers, cheap beyond cheap, clothed in black rags, barely held together from use, stinking and filthy with dirt deep under her fingernails, not wanting to wash for fear of the water bill. Hetty Green, never keeping a fixed address to dodge the taxman, hopping from boarding house to boarding house between Brooklyn, Queens, and Hoboken, never paying more than $22 a month for her shabbily furnished cold water flats. Hetty, out shopping in these impoverished neighborhoods, haggling over cents and milligrams, leaving the goods she handles smudged and soiled, refusing to buy more often than not because she can't get the price down low enough for her liking. Hetty Green, who, although she likely has more money than any woman in America, is gripped every waking moment with agony for each cent as if it were her last. Hetty Green, popularly known as the richest woman in America, a debatable fact, though she's certainly close. Either way, it's true that she's unfathomably wealthy in a time of great and widespread poverty. But though she's hated, she is not hated for that. People dislike her for something else entirely, for her refusal to act like a rich person, despite having so much wealth for her refusal to give America the glittery tales of the rich and famous it requires, for her refusal to spend what she has lavishly, for her constitutional inability to do so. But through all the perception and projection, through all the versions of Hetty Green that float through the ether of popular consciousness in the second half of the 19th century, through the Gilded Age itself, 
the most interesting question about Hetty Green is one no one bothers to ask. Why? What binds Hetty Green so intensely to her money? What causes her to coil herself so closely around each cent of her fortune? What does it mean to be so obsessed with money in America? What does it mean to be the country's richest woman, but to never know your own worth? We'll get into all that. But before we do, all you need to know is Hetty Green is an enigma, a very rich one. History happened. The good, bad, the ugly. This is the underside of history, the lesser known pieces lost in the bigger picture of time. From the creators of myths and legends and from cast media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join us every episode as we explore the dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. Late November, 1834, New Bedford, Massachusetts, in its heyday, a hub of the whale oil industry. In this time before black gold, whale oil is king, and New Bedford is its kingdom. A cold wind blows hard and unforgiving, carrying the sting and salt of the sea past the docks up to New Bedford's wealthy heights. There, Abby Howland Robinson labors with her first child. Downstairs, Edward Mott Robinson paces. He's a shrewd and domineering businessman. His aquiline features resemble those of a bird of prey, giving him his nickname, Black Hawk Robinson. Black Hawk married Abby, heir to the biggest whaling game in town, and now, visions of a son just like him, fixated on the endless accumulation of wealth, dance before Edward as the short New England day passes into night. Instead, a girl, Hetty Howland Robinson, announces her presence to the world, like it or not. Edward is furious and takes it out on Abby. Uninterested in his first child, he immediately insists on a second, Abby hands Hetty off to her nursemaids, never quite meeting her piercing blue eyes. When Hetty is barely six months old, the promise of a son briefly warms the cold house again. And when a boy is born, things seem to fall into place. But once again, only for a moment. He dies after a few short days. The shadow of loss falls in the Robinson house and never lifts, driving a wall between Abby and Edward. She takes to her bed, where she mostly remains for the rest of her life. He hardens against the world and dives headlong into work. Hetty, now barely a toddler, is whisked away, though still in New Bedford, to live with her grandfather, aunt, and step-great-grandmother. These are the beginnings of Hetty Howland Robinson, who will one day become Hetty Green, the Witch of Wall Street the richest woman in America. Hetty's new family are Gideon, Ruth, and Sylvia, all of them joined by circumstances out of their control. Gideon, Abby's father and Hetty's grandfather, is an eccentric who once captained whaling ships, but is now shorebound by age and illness. Ruth, Hetty's step-great-grandmother, is the second wife of Isaac Howland, the family patriarch. She regards Hetty, like all of her seemingly eternal house guests, with exhaustion. Then there's Sylvia, born crooked-spined and sickly. Alien Sylvia isn't yet 30, but it's become clear she will never marry, and she'll remain cloistered in the big old house. All three of them are Quakers, like many in New Bedford. In some ways, the Quakers are progressive. They're anti-war abolitionists and believe in women's education. And the Quakers also stress restriction and temperance, denial of the self, plainness as a virtue, 
Music, drinking, and even brightly colored clothes are taboo. Perhaps the most American thing about the New Bedford Quakers is the way they view money. Financial success is a sign of providence, material proof of God's favor. Wealth means God has chosen you, and Hetty's father is willing to put money first, above everything, like Abraham unquestioningly binding Isaac for slaughter. Edward's dogma is that money should never be frivolously spent. It is to be saved assiduously, guarded jealously, and parted with only very sparingly and with great reluctance. Because money must be passed to the next generation, who will receive it and expand on it, handing an even larger fortune down to their own children. This will continue the legacy of American nobility, of chosen peoplehood. This is Hetty Green's earliest education, and she learns it well. As a child, Hetty, having been rejected by her parents, is desperate for attention and in need of nurturing. Sylvia and Ruth have neither the strength nor the patience to deal with her. Abby stays in bed, and all Edward sees in his daughter is the son he doesn't have. So Hetty becomes wild, unmanageable. She spirals out into violent tantrums. This is a major problem. The pacifist Quakers believe anger must be avoided at all costs. Visible rage is as bad as swilling booze. So when Hetty shrieks and gnashes and wails inconsolably, many recoil in horror. But to someone so neglected, negative attention is sometimes better than none at all. It is Gideon and his failing eyes that turn things around. Squinting over the late editions, struggling to read the papers, he relies on others to keep him current with the business world. And he realizes his wild granddaughter might come in handy. He asks her to read to him, and she does. She reads in the papers, as well as articles on world affairs, business journals discussing shifts in tariffs and taxes, futures and securities, shipping and cargo rates. Hetty also helps with Gideon's correspondence. He dictates his letters while explaining his strategy in real time, the triangulation of desire that lies at the heart of so much of the business world. Best to buy when nobody wants something. Eventually, everyone will want it again, and then you'll hold all the cards. Hetty gets an immersion study in business from a man with decades of experience. And for the first time in her life, she gets the basic validation that she has always craved. So when Gideon gives eight-year-old Hetty a few coins and tells her to do something smart with them, she listens. She deposits them in the bank, earning her first compound interest. Ruth, Gideon, and Sylvia are all delighted and impressed. Even Edward can't help but notice. This only sears the message deeper, branding it onto the very core of Hetty's being. This is how you show worth. This is how you show love. It is a finite, fickle resource and can be pulled back at any time. Never, ever let it go. Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here. If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review. Also, we'd love your feedback. Go to castmedia.com slash scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks. You can listen to Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, ad-free on Amazon Music. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. 
It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Carissa, would you say that I'm a detail-oriented person who does not get overwhelmed by a bunch of complex steps? <laughs> would you say that I carry a low to zero amount of stress every day? Yeah, so here's the thing. We always knew seeing a therapist for any of life's challenges was a good thing, but it always seemed too time-consuming or complicated or expensive to use one. That was before Talkspace. With Talkspace, everything is online and it's accessible, even with our schedule, and it's affordable. I say don't wait. There's no need to wait for something big to happen. Go for it. Therapy can help change your perspective, whether it's stress, balancing work, or something entirely different. Talkspace means no need to commute to appointments. It means you can send messages to your licensed therapist between sessions if you want, and it's in-network with most major insurers. I also like that you sign up online and get a personalized match with a licensed therapist, typically within 48 hours, and it's secure with end-to-end bank-grade encryption and HIPAA compliance. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off of your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com and use code SCOUNDREL. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com and use code SCOUNDREL to get $100 off of your first month and show your support for the show. That's SCOUNDREL at Talkspace.com. When Gideon, the grandfather, dies, most of his estate goes to Abby and Sylvia. Ruth moves out and Abby replaces her, finally leaving Edward, at least physically. Edward, remember Hetty's father, doesn't pay any mind, so long as he still has a claim on her money. Edward benefits from Gideon's death the most. He takes Abby's share of Gideon's fortune and the helm of Gideon's whaling business. Given more money, he thinks only of ways to increase it further. He squeezes a penny till the eagle squawks, looks at generosity as foolish, and makes himself as closed and unsparing to others as possible. In doing so, he expands the family fortune many times over. Attempts are made to civilize Hetty. At 10, she's sent off to a strict boarding school. Her education there is tedious and restrictive, but home also has its own set of problems. Hetty is now over-scrutinized by Abby and Sylvia. At the same time, though, Hetty's precociousness has begun to pique her father's interest. One morning, Hetty asks to come along on his daily rounds. And so her education continues. 1844. New Bedford is two cities in one. The first, a wealthy Quaker city, fine homes, manicured gardens and paved roads, funded by the whale oil money filling the city's coffers. And the second, cobblestone streets, slick, glistening, sloping toward the water, catering to the men who go to the sea, who pursue and slaughter whales for their oil. This is where the business in New Bedford is done. Banks and counting houses, outfitters and merchants, shipbuilders and tradesmen. Every day, Hetty accompanies her father into the second city. She watches as he takes his daily inventory, bargains with merchants, inspects his ships. When he gets rough, when he sizes up someone trying to pull one over on him, she's watching too. 
And then she also learns at the banks and brokerages where she learns to read ledgers. Edward echoes a lesson. Never give anyone anything, not even a kindness. Never let anyone take what is yours. Everyone will try. Every penny must be saved, as if upon pain of death. Hetty listens, watching the sailors, who are day drunk and wobbly on land, making their way to the shoreside taverns. At 15, Hetty is sent to a finishing school, although only briefly. She has her debut, dazzling in a white muslin dress, hoop with a whalebone, a wreath of artificial flowers in her hair. But really, she can't be bothered. Her mind is down at the docks, swimming in facts and figures, rendering pounds of blubber into money, into acknowledgement of her worth. Still, even Edward insists that Hetty has to be married. So he sends her off to New York, two well-regarded cousins, the Grinnells, to be feted. Before she leaves, he gives her $1,200, and tells her to embellish her wardrobe. But as she gets on that overnight steamer to New York City, it's clear that she has something else in mind. Hetty arrives in a New York that's all bustle and boom, an ever-growing chorus of horse carts and street cars and construction. Outrageous abundance floods forth from the few who can afford it. As always, serviced by the rest, the majority, who can barely scrape by. Hetty's there on a mission. Post-debut, she has three years to get hitched. Or so they say. She's taken through the ringer of high society for months on end, and through an endless stream of eligible bachelors. But she's perennially uninterested. Debutante life bores her. At the balls, she ignores the young men extending their hands, instead trying to overhear their father's business conversations. And in her spare time, she zeroes in on business with her father. He's anxious that she hasn't married, but he can't help but be pleased by her interest in money and frugality, which by then matches his own. He smiles when she tells him she spent only $200 of his $1,200 in dress money and deposited the rest in bonds. Hetty turns 25, and soon afterward, her mother dies. But she's more concerned with the execution of Abby's estate than anything else. Abby Howland Robinson leaves no will, meaning all of her money over $100,000, which is $3.2 million today, goes to Edward, the father, her husband. Hetty argues that the money should be hers, but Edward insists that he's better suited to grow the family fortune and the law is on his side. For what it's worth, Ed does grow the family fortune. Watching the times change, he shifts gears, divesting from whaling and joining a merchant shipping company. Edward also invests in the metal currency put out by the Union, which desperately needs money to fund the then-raging Civil War. The generous 6% return rate makes them exponentially richer once they win. Hetty turns her sights elsewhere. Sylvia's will, the promise that one day Sylvia will pass on her money, becomes Hetty's locus of security. In truth, Hetty desperately wants to be closer to Sylvia. But like Edward, Sylvia is miserly in spirit and in intimacy. This only makes Hetty further double down on the will, the only form of affection that is safe to demand. 1861. Sylvia stands to leave three quarters of her estate to Hetty under the control of a trust and the remaining one quarter to friends and charities. Unacceptable. Hetty demands the entire estate with no intervening trusts. Because this is about emotional assets, not financial assets. Still, it looks to everyone else like a rich young heiress greedily badgering her elderly aunt. Over months of negotiations, Hetty becomes increasingly desperate, 
reverting to inconsolable tantrums. If I'm not made the sole beneficiary, then I will surely go bankrupt, become a public charity case, a ward of the state. Of course, this is absurd. Hetty Howland Robinson will never want for money. But Hetty believes it. Her terror is real. She has no control over the family's money. Her father could easily leave her destitute. And then where would she be? Crying gives way to explosive anger. She fixates on the servants, starts to see them as Sylvia wasting her inheritance, becomes convinced that they're conspiring to keep Sylvia from signing the will. When Sylvia announces her plans to add a servant's wing to the house, Hetty goes ballistic. She storms upstairs to her room, flinging clothes, stripping the bed of linens. If they want everything, they can have this too. Exhausted, Sylvia finally relents. In January of 1862, she signs the will, leaving all her money to Hetty. No trusts involved. Hetty's behavior may be viewed as money-obsessed, uncouth, and, well, yeah, it is. But Hetty is never given a vocabulary to describe her emotional needs, so she grabs desperately at something she thinks is solid enough to hold on to, and that's money. Once Hetty hits her 30s, the pressure to marry really ramps up. The society pages demand. Why is she still single? Simple, lack of interest. She doesn't mind scandalizing the public and actually far prefers it to marrying any of her tedious suitors. That is, until Ned Green. Ned is strapping at 44, the son of a wealthy Vermont family. He's just returned from spending 20 years abroad, where he made millions representing dubious European investors in the Far East. He's blue-eyed and handsome, witty and well-traveled, and fluent in several languages, and he knows how to work a room. Ned is struck by Hetty the moment he sees her, and for once, she's struck back. He courts her at galas and dinners across the city, noted approvingly by the press. Hetty knows that Ned is a bit of a lush, with a wide range of appetites. He's an Episcopalian, after all, but this seems secondary in the whirlwind of new love. Then things start to darken. Sylvia takes ill and falls under the influence of a predatory doctor, William Gordon, who keeps her doped up on laudanum and forbids her to see Hetty. Hetty frantically tries to reach Sylvia, begging to see her, just to hear from her in hundreds of unanswered letters. As Sylvia gets sicker and frailer, Dr. Gordon tightens his grip, moving into the Howland estate full time. Finally, Hetty learns that Sylvia has changed her will a revelation which sends her reeling. Before she can truly react, another sudden illness demands her attention. This time, it's Edward. Hetty rushes to her father's side. Edward allows himself to rely on Hetty, not just as a nursemaid, but as a business colleague. He asks her to manage his stocks, bonds, his real estate holdings, as well as his shipping business. After all these years taking scraps of approval, Hetty is finally called in as the A-team. Punctuating this win, Ned proposes. Edward approves, satisfied that Ned has his own money and won't come for Hetty's. Still, he makes Ned sign a sort of proto-prenup, then virtually unheard of. In doing so, Edward offers Hetty protection and economic freedom in her marriage, a freedom few other women are afforded. But he also reveals the limitations of his respect. Hetty recoils as he celebrates her finally having a clever man to help her manage her money. Still, as Edward gets sicker, Hetty stays by him. In his last days, he screams, delirious, that he had been poisoned. 
His enemies had come for his money. In the end, all that money doesn't soothe his final terrors. It only animates them. He grabs at Hetty's lapels, adrenaline strength coursing through his emaciated arms, and hisses at her through gritted teeth. I swear to you, you'll be next. And then, he's gone. Hetty buckles under the weight of her father's death. But when they read his will, she collapses, crushed. Edward Robinson leaves a huge fortune, over $6 million, nearly $176 million today. He gives Hetty the equivalent of Ned's holdings, $1 million in the bank, $919,000 in cash, today nearly $36 million. But he leaves the rest under the control of a trust. And though she can draw income from the interest, she will never control the principal. It's common knowledge, after all, he'd say, that women can't be trusted with such things. Most would be overjoyed by such a huge windfall, but all Hetty can feel is searing betrayal. All she can see is her father placing barriers between her and his love. Racked with grief and furious, she rages to Ned for weeks. But before she can even catch her breath, she's called to Massachusetts. Sylvia is now dying. She rushes back and barely arrives in time, only for Dr. Gordon to slink up to her and say, Really, Miss Robinson, I am sorry to see you looking so miserable. And then, Sylvia is gone too. If Hetty struggles with her father's will, she puts up the fight of her life with Sylvia's. When Sylvia dies, she is the richest woman in New Bedford, and her new will grants most of her money to its residents. Hundreds of thousands of dollars go to New Bedford friends, to servants, to the city for social programs, education, the arts, to orphans' homes, to people in need and aged and infirm women, and of course, to Dr. Gordon. Hetty gets a mere one million, over 35 million today. Humiliatingly, it is to be placed in a trust controlled by Dr. Gordon. She sees absolute red. Over the next few weeks, She's on the warpath, campaigning, trying to find anyone willing to testify against the will. She can't see how heinously selfish it is to demand Sylvia's money from the needy, just to add to her already enormous fortune. Instead, as if pulled by the gears of a clock, Hetty is set in motion, and she can only press forward. Unsurprisingly, she makes herself persona non grata in New Bedford. Hetty's hometown unites against her. The press gets wind of the story, pouncing on headlines about the miserable miser millionaire taking food from the mouths of orphans and widows. Meanwhile, Hetty is unraveling. She becomes convinced her father really was poisoned, as he deliriously claimed on his deathbed, and that she would be next. His terrified, feverish last words echo in her head as she sits alone in his old, empty house. At night, she crawls under a bed in the attic like a wounded animal, sometimes staying there for days at a time. She obsesses over the schemers, trying to get her money. But she presses on. She sues, challenging Sylvia's will, claiming it was forged. When the probate court rules against her in November 1865, she persists to the Supreme Court of Massachusetts. What follows is a knockdown, drag-out fight. A very public suit that gets very public national headlines. In New York, Hetty's name is plastered across the papers, detailing her outrageous behavior blow by blow. This strains Hetty's relationship with Ned. They fight often and break off their engagement several times, but they keep coming back to each other. And eventually they throw up their hands and say, might as well. 
on July 11, 1867, Edward Green and Hetty Howland Robinson marry at the Grinnells townhouse. She's 34, and by all accounts, including the copious press coverage, an astonishingly beautiful bride. Ned stands beside her, beaming in a well-tailored suit, as they exchange vows in the parlor. After their wedding, Hetty and Ned get on a luxury steamer, paid for by Ned, and head to London. It's the perfect place for Hetty Green to reinvent herself. She's far away from former limitations, stipulations, restrictions. Now she can truly start making things happen. And she does. She invests using the deceptively simple and stubborn formula that will put her on the map. First, have your father leave you a trust fund yielding compound interest. Then go contrarian. Look for an underdog you can buy out at a bargain price. In this case, she had two, greenbacks and railroads. Post-Civil War, the future of the U.S. is still uncertain, and the government needs money. It issues greenbacks and treasury bonds, both essentially bets that the Fed will last long enough to pay out. People aren't really taking that bet, preferring the sure thing of gold. When the price of bills and bonds drop to under 50 cents on the dollar, Hetty swoops in. She knows to buy what nobody wants, but what sooner or later, people will trip over themselves to get. She never gambles, borrows, or buys with money that isn't hers. At this time, and to this day, speculation is far more popular for investors. Speculation is essentially glorified gambling, stacking debt on debt to buy up and monopolize resources, driving up obscene prices from which obscene profits can be pulled. It's favored by people who consider themselves daring disruptors, so used to having the odds stacked in their favor that they see investments as just another game that they'll surely win. Of course, speculation is far more dangerous to individual investors and to the American economy, which it has inflated and crashed about every 30 years or so since then. Speculators ride waves, which at first means dramatic swells and unimaginable profits. But what rises must also fall. And when stocks fall on Wall Street, it rains carnage on the rest of America, scattering farmers and factory workers to the wind, none of whom even knew the game was being played. And many speculators' fortunes fall too. Not those wise or lucky enough to get out in time, and not those who are too rich to feel their losses, but often those who go all in on like, vibes alone and let everything ride on red. First eschewing greenbacks, speculators employ their old trick on gold, and the cost of gold does soar skyrocketing fortunes. Until the government puts more gold on the market. Gold plummets. Swaths of speculators lose their fortunes. But greenbacks start to rise. The speculators shift their gaze to paper money and treasury bonds, buying and selling bills and promissory notes, spawning companies like Goldman Sachs. Soon the government offers par value for greenbacks, making them as valuable as gold. For those like Hetty, who bought when the greenbacks were in the bargain bin, the profits are enormous. In a single day, she adds, quote, a clean $200,000, about $2.4 million today, to her bank account. Railroads also yield Hetty huge profits. Hetty joins the usual roster of robber barons, J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie, Commodore Vanderbilt, in buying up substantial railroad stakes while the prices are still low. At first, the old boys club mistakes Hetty for some ignorant heiress, but the way she invests and the hard-nosed tenacity with which she makes money show them otherwise. She's very careful in picking railroads, 
conducting intensive, exhaustive research, doggedly gathering information. Helpfully, Ned happens to be a central figure in the European financing of American railroads, giving Hetty unique access to information her male competitors could never dream of. And this pays off. After one year in London, her personal profits reach 1.25 million, over 26 million today. Hetty becomes renowned for her business acumen, as if to reinforce her drive to accumulate cash. Hetty's happiness seems to grow with her money. These years in London may be the best of her life. She has two children, Ned Jr., broad-shouldered and outgoing, and Sylvie, quieter, more passive, clinging to her mother's skirts. Hetty pushes further into railroads and oil mines and makes millions more over the next seven years, with prices skyrocketing. And then the other shoe drops. In 1873, a domino effect topples many of the major railroads and brokerage firms causing a run on the banks. Prices tank, Wall Street brokers run screaming through the streets, and then watch stunned as the exchange stays closed for 10 days straight. The effects tear through the country, factories close, hundreds of thousands of people lose their jobs, and farmers and homeowners are foreclosed upon en masse, losing their hard-won property. Reading the writing on the wall, Hetty and Ned come back to the US in the autumn of 1873. Hetty reintroduces herself, making a considerable impression on the depressed, flattened financial landscape by buying up basically whatever she wants for pennies on the dollar. This sets her up for future windfalls. Ned, however, has suffered losses. Unbeknownst to Hetty, he'd also speculated widely and lost huge sums during the crash. They decide to head out of the city, at least while they know business will be slow. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In Bellows Falls, Vermont, a crowd gathers at the train station to greet Ned, who's become something of a mythic figure over the years. When he visits, Ned always looks and plays the part of a millionaire, presenting extravagant gifts and displaying the accoutrements of his wealth. When Bellows Falls hears about Hetty, even richer than Ned, they have expectations. An elegant, pampered rose, immaculately coiffed and strictly mannered, all measured steps and curtsies. When Hetty clomps out of the train, dusty and ungainly in a warm black dress, they almost gasp with disappointment. Hetty and Bellows Falls continue to disappoint one another. The town's residents, like many Americans, are ready to worship the wealthy, so long as they offer a performance of otherworldly extravagance. Hetty does no such thing. 
the shopkeepers expect a woman as rich as Midas, with no money sense, ready to spend lavishly. They get a rude awakening. Hetty, with all of her millions, haggles rudely for bargains. She buys discount broken crackers and asks the butcher for free bones for her dogs. Ned's mother, Anna, is also sorely disappointed. Hetty is ruining Anna's reputation around town. Not to mention, the family is living in Anna's house instead of buying one of their own. After his losses, Ned doesn't have the money and Hetty refuses to use hers. So Anna's house it is. More, Hetty kind of imposes herself, pressing on Anna and Ned to live frugally, fighting with the servants and pressuring Anna to fire them, the past repeating itself. Resentments bubble. For her part, Hetty is also disappointed in Bellows Falls. When she arrived, she hoped she'd find everything she loved about her New England hometown. Instead, she got a reprisal of the way that hometown turned against her. She was disappointed about losing the independence she'd had in London, and was especially disappointed in Ned, whose speculations had landed them all in this spot. Her behavior around money escalates, but so do tales exaggerating them. Like, take for example, Ned Jr.'s leg. Fact one, Ned Jr. injures his knee. From there, the stories take on a life of their own. Hetty refuses to take Ned Jr. to a doctor to avoid spending money, or she brings him to a poorhouse clinic, disguised in rags, getting free but botched care to save money. In the end, Ned Jr. loses his leg, all because of Hetty's miserliness. The real story is perhaps somewhat less monstrous, and therefore less interesting to tellers and audiences alike. In reality, Hetty calls a doctor immediately, but the closest doctor takes hours to arrive. Ned Jr.'s condition seems to improve, meanwhile, so much so that by the time the doctor gets there, it seems like they don't need him, so they send him away. But they're wrong. Ned Jr.'s injuries are worse than they thought. He's dislocated his knee, and the injury doesn't heal properly, causing terrible pain. Hetty and Ned Sr., her husband, try everything, including taking him to many doctors, not poorhouse doctors either, but they all recommended amputation. Unwilling to accept the prognosis, they keep trying, taking Ned Jr. to many doctors in multiple states. Admittedly though, it is true that Hetty sometimes disguises herself in rags, so doctors won't, quote, overcharge her. Sometimes the doctors fall for it and give her discounts. Other times, like when she tries it with a leading orthopedist in New York, she's found out and roundly chastised, much to the chagrin of her mortified son. Years after his initial injury, Ned Jr. gets hit by a carriage, making amputation unavoidable. This is when Ned Jr. loses his leg, though everyone still believes the popular version, even a century after Hetty's death. Still, Hetty's behaviors around money only get worse, and the resentments between her and Ned grow accordingly. Ned's mother dies, and soon after, he comes home to find all of his mother's treasured crystal, silver, and china gone. When he asks what happened, Hetty simply says she's put everything up for sale. Ned, normally patient and abiding, hits a breaking point. He picks up a goblet, throws it at the wall, and leaves. After that, Ned gets lost gambling on increasingly wild business ventures. He buys California mining stocks on speculation, and they suddenly drop, making his holdings worthless. He has to ask Hetty to bail him out. 
she is furious. And though she pays, he never recovers her trust or her respect. Around this time, Hetty and her husband Ned return to New York City, and thus begins Hetty's daily New York City grind. Every morning, she takes the omnibus down to Wall Street. Her insistence on public transport turns heads. One day, she boards the omnibus carrying $200,000 in bonds and a shabby leather bag. Her banker, shocked, asked why she just didn't take a private carriage. She hands him the equivalent of around $5.2 million today and says, perhaps you can afford to ride in the carriage. I cannot. Though Hetty cares deeply for her children, they aren't spared her money sickness. She dresses Ned Jr. and Sylvie, multi-millionaires, and hand-me-downs, and lines their shoes with newspaper. Sometimes they live large, if Ned is treating. Relying on his old connections, he's become an officer of several of the U.S.'s largest railroads. He's tasked with making rail inspections, and Hetty, meanwhile, has investment properties and railroads of her own to check on throughout the Midwest, Texas, and California. So, from time to time, Hetty and the children join Ned on the private company rail car, akin to a private jet today. Ned Jr. and Sylvie eat from crystal and silver and are waited on hand and foot by porters. Hetty seems not to mind. It's on Ned's dime, so what's the harm? What she does mind is what Ned gets up to on the train without them. You see, Ned has always had a reputation for womanizing, but Hetty thought he'd left that in the past until she starts suspecting otherwise. A PI confirms Ned's many affairs. Hetty is crushed. She starts separating from Ned then and there, taking the children away for the summers of 1882 and 1883. Then Ned makes his final error, a reckless investment deal with Cisco Bank, which holds over 6.5 million of Hetty's money. The deal fails, leaving Ned $700,000 in debt and causing Cisco's consumers to make a run on the bank. Hetty hears about the run. Fearing for her holdings, she tells Cisco to transfer her money to the chemical bank, but they refuse. Cisco tells Hetty about Ned's debt and that she'll have to pay it if she wants her money transferred. Hetty is absolutely livid. In a flood of furious letters, she insists that her finances are separate from Ned's, threatening to sue. In January 1885, when Cisco announces their closure, Hetty is on the next train. Arriving at 59 Wall Street, she again demands that they transfer her assets to the chemical bank. And again, they refuse to release her holdings until she pays Ned's debt. After she insists again, only to be refused again, she breaks down. Her rage rises, her old fury, the primordial fear of a young girl hurting and terrified. Her usually steely composure breaks. She flails, screams, hyperventilates. Her face swells hot and red, streaked with tears. She demands what's hers. She maybe remembers what it feels like to be a child, defenseless, to beg for comfort and caring, only to be met with disdain. She remembers New Bedford, Bellows Falls, Dr. Gordon's slimy grin. Passersby see a scene through the open bank doors and gawk. Rubbernecking, the papers have the story the very next day. Hetty is mortified and worse, stuck with the bill. She's forced to pay Ned's debts. Only then do they release her holdings. This is the line for Hetty. She can live with Ned's excesses, the gambling, even the philandering. 
but he's gone too far by messing with her money. Never mind that she has so much more. He's cost her a part of her wealth and might as well have cost her a part of her soul. How could she ever trust him with the rest? They never officially divorce. In fact, they stay friends. Hetty even tends to Ned in his final days, but their life together is over. When Hetty leaves Ned, she takes what could be called her final form. She starts living the way she truly wants and becomes a greater public curiosity for it. Take her house, or lack thereof. Hetty refuses opulent mansions with scores of servants. More, she refuses to run any house, period. Hetty boards like someone living paycheck to paycheck, the papers note, rather than the wealthiest woman in America. Some call her a tax dodge. While that may not be her primary motivation, it's certainly a plus. Without a known residence, she also avoids those seeking handouts or investments in their various schemes, as well as the prying eyes of journalists. Because she doesn't stay put, she hops boarding houses between Queens, Brooklyn, Hoboken, and Hackensack. To cover her tracks, she often uses a false name, sometimes signing Dewey, the name of her Sky Terrier. Boarding is also more comfortable for Hetty. This way, she isn't obligated to host, to see or be seen. In the end, she cares little for home life, fixated by her singular drive for work. It really doesn't matter to her where she sleeps at night, as long as it's private and basically accommodating. She's happiest when she can ignore all of that to focus on her work, investments in railroads and properties, stocks and bonds. Hetty wakes before dawn and dons her uniform, a well-worn out-of-style black dress, black gloves, black hat and veil. She walks briskly to the boat slip where she catches the ferry, riding shoulder to shoulder with the commuter crowd to 14th Street where she transfers to streetcar or omnibus traveling through streets thick with human and horse traffic. She arrives at the main offices of the Chemical Bank. She transferred her money there after the Cisco fiasco and has now set up camp there, appearing without fail at the start of every business day. They offer her formal offices, but she waves them off. She nods to the tellers and sits down at an empty roll-top desk in the bank's counting room. Hetty sets to work clipping coupons for dividends, reads her mail and all of the important papers front to back. Sometimes she takes meetings with business associates or checks on her lawsuits, which she continues to raise against many enemies till the day she dies. Hetty is fair to those who deal fairly with her, but ruthless entirely otherwise. She's frequently underestimated to the great peril of those so mistaken. This is noted in the business papers, alongside louder tabloid coverage of her otherworldly miserliness. Hollis Huntington is one example, a competitor railroad magnet. He approaches a dispute with Hetty disrespectfully, threatening Ned Jr. A trade journal warns, other big men have spoken this way of Mrs. Green in times gone past, but somehow she usually contrives to come out ahead whenever the fighting notion strikes her. Sure enough, Hetty draws him out and quarters him, raking him out over years of negotiations until, exhausted, he caves to her demands. Several more men try this with Hetty throughout the years, and several more men fall similarly at her feet. She sighs, perhaps recalling, maybe savoring, one such memory. And with the rest of her day, she researches, scours trade journals, white papers, periodicals, tabloids, figuring out how things work. This is essential to her process, 
just as key as buying low and selling high. At lunchtime, she heats a bowl of oatmeal on the bank's radiator, or sometimes finds a lunch counter, someplace no frills with a cheap menu. She's pushy and never demurs. She's not coy, doesn't feign weakness. She's capable of just as much pig-headed aggression as the rest of them. Usually though, at the bank, she's completely lost in her work. Money is what moves her, her sole driving desire. She immerses herself in the smells, sounds, sights, touch, and taste of money, flooding her senses all day long as she works in this cathedral to the dollar. She always stays till closing, first one in, last one out, leaving as they lock the door behind her. She takes the streetcar back down to 14th Street, the ferry back to wherever, and spends her quiet, private evenings in her room, her dog at her feet. In her final years, Hetty still gets up and works, though she devolves into something of a caricature of her old self. She becomes increasingly paranoid and stubborn and falls out with more and more of her business associates, including the chemical bank. She gets sick there one day and insists that she's been poisoned. Hetty and the chemical bank part ways soon thereafter. Hetty cuts a rather glaring figure in the Wall Street crowd by now with her all black Victorian garb and veil. She only has a few dresses, worn till threadbare, which she refuses to replace or send to be washed or mended until it's absolutely unavoidable. It's also true that she skimps on bathing to a certain extent, although never as much as alleged. Still, between that and her garb, she does have a distinct otherworldly look to her in these last years, as well as perennially dirty fingernails and a rather gamey odor in the summer. The papers are especially catty about this, as are her many wealthy enemies, finally spawning the moniker, the Witch of Wall Street. She becomes the ghostly bag lady who happens to have the biggest portfolio in Manhattan. Eddie shrugs. Just because I dress plainly and do not spend a fortune on my gowns, they say I'm cranky or insane. She tells one journalist, my life is written for me down in Wall Street by people who, I assume, do not care to know one iota of the real Hetty Green. I am in earnest, therefore they picture me as heartless. I go my own way, I take no partner, risk nobody else's fortune, and therefore I am Madam Ishmael, set against every man. In her final year, she suffers a series of strokes, as the story goes, set off by arguing with a maid to get a cheaper skimmed milk rather than the more expensive whole milk. She dies in Ned Jr.'s New York City home at 81 on July 3rd, 1916. The estate she leaves behind is worth about $200 million, nearly $5 billion today. What happens next is, to put it mildly, ironic. Once she's gone, her stockpiled legacy, meant to span forever, lasts just one generation. Hetty trained Ned Jr. to run the family business, but never managed to pass on her obsession. Ned Jr. is much more his father's son, and then some. In fact, he is an incredible lush. He meets Mabel, a sex worker in Dallas, and she becomes his lifelong companion. The two of them live large and lavishly, spending hundreds of thousands on cars, homes, travel, women, and yes, an impressive collection of pornography. When Ned Jr. dies happy, Mabel exhumes his amputated leg and has it reunited with his body, as per his last wishes. After a brief fight, Mabel gets a sizable cut, despite the prenup, had he made her sign, and the rest of the money goes to Sylvia, who has married late, to a minor Aster twice her age. Quiet Sylvia has her own designs for the family riches. Like her namesake, Sylvia Aster Wilkes, 
Nee Green, gives everything away. When she dies in 1951, she left virtually the entire fortune to various charities. Neither of Hetty's children leaves an heir. Throughout her life, Hetty Green is fixated on money as the only tangible thing, the only thing a person can hold on to. But as it turns out, money is just as ephemeral as anything else. Like Ozymandias, King of Kings, Hetty builds a fearsome and impressive fortune meant to stand the test of time. And like Ozymandias, her attempts are folly. Like him, she becomes a footnote, remembered only for her miscalculation and focus. Her eggs-all-in-one-basket single-mindedness that warps her into a caricature, a villain of greed. These days, both Ozymandias and Hetty Green are only mentioned in passing. He, the subject of a poem about his own decline, and she, a shorthand for miserliness, already out of use, such that you've probably never heard of her before now. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Lana Adler. It's produced by DJ Lubell, edited and sound designed by Anton Doty, and mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast. Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here. If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review. Also, we'd love your feedback. Go to castmedia.com slash scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.